Sometimes I lay under the moon. Welcome to the Torah Teachers Roundtable, Apostolic Edition, with your hosts Rob Miller, Mark Patron, and yours truly, Mark Call. We hope you'll find this discussion entertaining, thought-provoking, and that above all, you'll be like the Bereans and search out the scriptures for yourself to see if these things be true. Afternoon, folks. Welcome back. Happy Tuesday, and it's time for the drive to the uh, the Tower Teachers Roundtable uh, show, where we talk about those other parts of Scripture, uh, including a lot of things, especially of late, that uh, don't get uh, nearly as much coverage. People don't seem to be as familiar with them, and um, hopefully, this will help on that score. Because one of the things that we've seen come out of this is a continued theme. We're going to see more of it today, and I think it's so vital, especially in such a time as this, to explore that. So we'll come back to that in a second. But let me say, um, I guess, good. Good afternoon first to uh, to Ken, uh, because uh, Ken Irvin is finally here. Uh, a minute ago, we weren't sure if you are going to make it, Ken. Ken, are you there? I thought he was here. Maybe, we, maybe he didn't make it. <laughs> I spoke too soon. There he is. <laughs> Maybe he's not. Okay. I see his picture. Yep, he said he was there. <laughs> I guess he lied. In any case, man, MP, it sounds like you're there. How you doing? Hey, I'm here. I'm doing great. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm looking. I'm looking forward to getting into this uh, this little bit of uh, <laughs> this little bit of uh, uh, oh prophecy of what we're headed into. <laughs> this, the, the, the prophecies just keep uh, ret- returning over and over and over again, and we don't learn the lesson. The longer, as long as we don't learn the lessons of the, the, the stuff that goes on, we will com- continue to repeat it, and that's where we're going to be at today. We're going to be looking at stuff that we are in the, in the midst of repeating even as we speak. Okay. Well, uh, let's and think. as we live, well, there we go. He we're, is. We're here. actually living. We're actually living copies of what we're reading, aren't we? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, we're cycles. That's right. There's Ken. And hello, everybody. I'm here. I'm up and running. Okay. Ready to go. Well, let's see. I know that what we did last week was we read through the end of chapter 29, and um, we can uh, we can take another uh, look back in that, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to finish that in uh, fairly short order. Because um, we did talk a little bit about most of it last week. Anyway, um, Lauren, let's go to you first, Mark, and uh, take us where you'd like in there. All right. Well, yeah, I had commented through verse nine, and I think into verse ten, but we we got uh, cut off. So, but anyway, um, back to verse ten of chapter two. Um, yeah, addresses the land land directly in uh, verse ten. He says, I am against thee, in this instance, and at least for this immediate phrase, and thy rivers, Egypt. Okay, so Yah promises the land, I think, that he will desolate, that is to contract or to make small, make utterly useless, is how I take that, 
and make waste the land of Egypt. Not necessarily the people, but I do think that the one includes the other either way. Uh, Syene in verse 10 uh, has a note on uh, TSK, uh, in TSK, and it says, uh, Hebrews 7, uh, uh, how now Esuan, situated at the southern extremity of Egypt, uh, as Migdal was at the northern, uh, on the confines of Ethiopia, near the Tropic of Cancer and about latitude 24 degrees north, uh, longitude 32 degrees east. Uh, what TSK, um, a mid-19th century commentary, calls Esuan, is what we call Aswan, you know, famous for its dam, uh, which has been both a blessing and a curse, the, the Aswan Dam. The blessing is that the Nile no longer floods Egypt, as it did all through biblical times and up into, to 1971 when the dam was completed. But if you'll remember the book of Exodus, the flooding caused the fertility of the Egyptian lowlands um, all up and down the valley. The, the dam catches the silt and, and, and it made the desert blossom, as it did in Moshe's day, and made it possible for, to provide food for many lands, including Israel and the Jakobsons during the prophesied seven years of dearth. You remember the, back in Genesis, uh, wherever it was, in, uh, uh, oh, it was a, 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 a dream that the, uh, yeah. the far, Paro had had, Paro had had. So anyway, that was that was um, uh, interpreted by Yosef. Anyway, the only way I can see Yah pulling off this particular prophecy is to cause drought in the south, which is certainly within his wheelhouse. He can do that. Uh, so the curse that Yah laid on Egypt is pronounced in verses 11 and 12. Syene, that is Aswan, uh, will be uninhabited by anything alive, for 40 years. Yah seems to like that particular number, especially when he pronounces judgment for his people and their children, whether for good or for ill. Here are a couple of well-known uses of this phrase, like in the case of Avram's son in Genesis, sons rather, in Genesis 25-20. And Yitzhak was 40 years old when he took Rivka to wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian in Padanaram, the sister of Lavan, the Syrian. That was for good. Then in chapter 26, Genesis chapter 26 and verse 34, it says, And Esav rather, was 40 years old when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Be'eri, the Hittite, and Bashemat, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, which were a grief of mind unto Yitzhak and Rivka. Okay, that was for ill. Also remember, that Noah had built the ark because Yah was going to make it rain for 40 days and 40 nights. In our passage, Yah is bringing judgment against Egypt in the days following the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem for not defending Yehuda as promised. I could be wrong, but I kind of doubt it. TSK has this on verse 12. And I will scatter. Uh, we learn from the Barosus rather, that Nebuchadnezzar sent several captive Egyptians to Babylon, and from Megasthenes, that uh, that he transplanted others to Pontus, and it is probable that at the dissolution of the Babylonian Empire about forty years after, Cyrus, that is Koresh the Mede, 
permitted them to return to their native country. Okay, so it was, uh, that last was talking about the end of the exile for, for Israel in Babylon, and Koresh, Cyrus the Mede, was going to free them and let them go back home, and that's exactly what they did. So they were 40, 40 days, or 40 years rather, in captivity, just like we were 40 days and 40 nights um, uh, elsewhere. As uh, The word 40 is used quite often for uh, a time of uh, um, a judgment against us. Anyway, that's pretty much what I got through verse 12. Okay, Ken, where do you want to go? Um, I can I can uh, say a little bit on nine through twelve here. I, I think I might have said a little bit of this before, but I've um, uh, I did notice in verse ten we have these two words korba koreb. Uh, one is a root of the other, and usually, right? Uh, you know, um, when when the letter hey is added to the end of a word, which I believe this is a very good example of this. So koreb uh, would have to do with um, made waste or uh, at least in terms of heat, it, it, there's going to be like a great drought, in other words. Um, but that will be fulfilled when you see the hay at the end. So that's why I believe it's rendered in the King James as utterly waste. So instead of utterly waste, if you looked at the Hebrew, you would see, the word waste, and then you would see the word waste with the hay added at the end, which means really completion. You know, it means fulfillment and, and, um, to, to the greatest extent, you know. So apparently the, the translators like the word utterly. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of <laughs> how that ended up. And, and then he adds the word desolate onto the end of that. So, I mean, it's no wonder no one will even desire to stop and enjoy this land for 40 years, it says. Now, I, I've always considered 40 years to be a, a time of trial and tribulation. Um, not, not always, um, uh, judgment per se. Um, only because, uh, judgment is kind of final, whereas trial and tribulation is where Yah wants to literally take you through something, usually to bring you down low so that he may bring you up, you know. Um, and and that's pretty much what he does when he brings Yisrael into the wilderness, for example, for, for 40 years, if we recall that. They needed to be humbled and, and learn, you know, the, the ways of Yah in terms of, um, you know, loving one another, Um uh, not caring about themselves, you know, Th- things like this were were very hard for that people, <laughs> and and even today I think this is a a real hard thing for a lot of people as well to to put away pride and to really put others b- even before yourself. That that is just so hard to do, but that's the way Yah wants us. Yah wants us to be humbled, you know. He wants us to love others so much, you know, liken to Him. That you would just give yourself for others, and that's what Messiah did. He was the perfect example of someone who gave his own life for every other life in this world, you know. And 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 that's that's what we should follow. We should be like him. Um, so, and thus we see because of this forty-year period, we see how Yah 
you know, cleanses, cleanses the land, which he, he likes to do a lot of times, uh, after there's a lot of, uh, sin and wickedness. He believes it needs cleansing and it, it needs rest. So, so we see a 40 year period, which, um, like I said, uh, for, for, for the people, it was, uh, I believe a time where they would, uh, you know, n- now that they know this was Yahuwah who, who kicked them out of their land. Over this 40-year period, they are going to learn, and they're going to be brought back. So it's kind of like, it's really cool that, you know, Yah treats them kind of like he does Israel. You know, he brings them back to their land. And um, that's that's kind of a wonderful thing. So he he's really opening the door of of being like Yah to not just his people, but to the Goyim or Gentiles. You know, and this started not with Messiah, but it goes way back and we see it even here. This is such a good example of you have Mitzrites who are literally Goyim. They are heathens and Yah has hope for them. He believes they can also see him for what he is. Not, you know, I don't want to say who he is because uh, he's not like a man. He's he's that, you know. The great creator. He's, he's the great spirit and we all need to strive to understand, to learn about him and to try to be like him. You know, that's how we all should do. Anyway, that's, that's what I had through verse 12 myself. Um, and are you seeing MC that you, you read the entire chapter or I did? We, just we can reread parts to of certain point to, to, uh, to kind of get us. No, back you on read through it last week. It yes, we did. It's a good idea to probably uh, recap as well, we go. Yeah, let me let me just recap oh, okay. what we're seeing here because essentially there's another. These are this entire section are going to be prophecies of judgment and desolation against various places and peoples. And uh, for example, verse eleven: neither foot of man shall pass through it, nor beast pass through it. Uh, and the forty years we've already talked about. At the end of forty years, I'm going to gather the Egyptians from the peoples among whom they were scattered, bring back the captives of Egypt, and it'll be the lowest of kingdoms. Never again exalt itself above the nations. No longer will it um, be the confidence of the house of Israel, but remind them of their torahlessness, um, their iniquity. And then here we go. This is the verse I mentioned at the top of the hour. We're going to see this over and over and over again. Must be important. Then they shall know ki ani. And no, uh, I am not. Um, I, I am the Lord God is, is a crappy translation. Let me be as kind as I can because they took what he says we're going to know and hid it, took it out of there. How, how silly is that? They will know, Ki and Yahuwah, that I am Yudhe Vavhe. Okay, and then he talks about it'll come to pass in the 22nd year, first month, first day of the month, that the word of Yahuwah came to me and said, Son of man, here we go, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. <laughs> Going to talk about him and what he is going to do. And again, um, the uh, the portion ends with, In that day I'll cause the horn of the house of Israel to spring forth, and I will open your mouth to speak in their midst. And guess what? Then they shall know ki ani Yahuwah. So um, MP, go ahead and just pick it up anywhere in there you'd like. All right. Well, I'm in uh, verse 13, so here we go. Um uh, have have you have you read uh, thirteen through sixteen by any chance, Mark? Yeah, I, I, it really would be good to, to get the get the scripture that we're commenting on right before we do it. You know what I mean? 
Well, okay, I can do again. that if you'd like. Thus says Yahuwah Eloheka. At the end of 40 years, I'll gather the Egyptians from the peoples among whom they were scattered. I'll bring back the captives of Egypt and we'll return to the land of the Pharaohs, to the land of their origin. There'll be a lowly kingdom. Lowliest, in fact. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, despite the judgment that Yah brought on Mitzrayim in our previous block, in, uh, up to verse uh, 12, uh, he relents of his cursing because it acted as a refuge of sorts for Yaakov and his family due to the faithful service of Yosef as Paro's vice-regent. Okay, we're talking about Egypt now. Now, Yah's promise is to bring again Egypt's captivity. That doesn't mean that Yah is doubling the time of captivity, but that he is bringing Egypt back to their birthright homeland. Bring again is translated from the Hebrew 7725, shuv, which literally means to return, to move backward. In this case, it means to return to their birthright, which it is called pathros, uh, of Egyptian derivation. There is no Hebrew. Azamra's commentary on verses 11 to 16 is very good, and this is what they had to say. And I'm going to go back to verse 14 after I get through with this. It says, the first of the series of prophecies about the coming destruction of Egypt does not specify who would bring the sword and who would break or wreak the havoc there, which we only learn in the next prophecy, beginning in verse 17. The focus of this first prophecy is on the devastation itself, which would spread from one end of the country to the other, according to verse 10 and following. Now, this would last for a period of 40 years. That's in verses 11 and following. Our commentators explain the deep thread of divine justice that underlies this 40-year time frame. 42 years of famine were decreed in Paro's dream in Genesis chapter 41, corresponding to the three times that seven bad cows and seven bad ears of corn were written in the text. Once when Paro saw his dream, once when he narrated it to Yosef, and the third time when Yosef explained to him what the seven empty bad cows and seven empty ears of corn were, a total of 42 years of famine. But in the time of Yaakov, they suffered only two years of famine, because Yaakov came down to Egypt and the famine ceased. The remaining 40 years were extra exacted from them now, this according to Rashi, on verse 11 of our chapter here. Okay, so 42 years of drought were were prophesied in uh, in um, Israel's day. Or so okay? it says. Only two were actually served, and so that Yah had these 40 years of cursing that he has to lay on them somewhere, and he's doing it now in the passages that we're looking at in Yehezkel. Okay, that's the way that the rabbis are seeing this. Now, the final word of verse 14 is that Egypt will be a base kingdom. The Hebrew for base is 8213, uh, Shafal, to weigh out, which means, to, which brings to mind in Daniel 527, the writing on the wall. Here's Daniel 5, 22 to 29. This, this ties in, it really does. And thou, his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, 
though thou knewest all of this, but hast lifted up thyself against Yah of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of this house before thee, and thou and thy lords, thy wives, and thy concubines have drunk wine in them. You've taken the the vessels that were in the Holy of Holies, and you've drunk wine out of them. Okay. And thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold, of brass, of iron, of wood, of stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know. And the God is in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, hast not Hast thou not glorified? Then was the part of the hand sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is the writing that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, ufarsin. This is the interpretation of the meaning. Mene, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tekel, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Paris, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. As Belshazzar was a was abased for his treatment of Israel, so was Egypt. And these were the contemporary judgments on the heathen nation, kingdoms that failed to do what they promised for Yehuda. Well, Egypt may have been a few years earlier since Belshazzar was Nebuchadnezzar's son. But that should have been a warning to Belshazzar. Uh, verse 15 is telling Zeke, Zeke's audience, that Egypt, that great dynastic kingdom, will be abased, which is, was, and really still is. However, Egypt has never become a great power again, though they did make an attempt when Rome was on the rise. I, I think we're seeing the abasing of the United States of America at type and share. It hasn't yet become final, but Yah is giving one and on the web and Hebrew radio. The BCCF, um, that by the way is the uh, the Bush Clinton crime family. The BCCF has been working on it for decades and has almost succeeded. If there's an election in 2024, which is not a guarantee we may have a chance to place a bookmark in the judgment we so richly deserve. That's what I've got through verse 16. Okay. Uh, go ahead, Ken. And we'll be coming to break in about a minute. Now. <laughs> yeah, we got a little, just a bit of time here. Oh, gee, thanks. <laughs> a few seconds. <laughs> a few seconds, huh? <laughs> I love uh, it when you cut off, Ken. Yeah, I know. <laughs> You just wish it were my legs that were getting cut off, right? <laughs> so I can walk around on stubs. Um, so, yeah, verses 13 and 14. Should I start on this? Um, I uh, This is cool to see that Yah scatters the Mitzvites, as he did in Yisrael. You know, continue after. I I'm breathing, and I pray. Don't take me soon, cause I am here for a reason Sometimes in my tears I drown, but I never let it get me down So when negativity surrounds, I know someday the lost turns around Because all my life I've been waiting for, I've been praying for For the people to say that we know what I'm fighting for There'll be no more, and 
Teachers Roundtable Tanakh edition. We're talking about the book of Ezekiel, chapter 29. Almost finished with that one at this point. And we'll go right back to Ken, who uh, was disappointed at the top of the hour, um, bottom of the hour anyway. But now he's got more time. <laughs> That's right. I'll, I'll even go back and read my the one and only sentence I got to get out of my mouth here. Uh, so let me, let, let me spew it out one more time. So it's really cool to see that Yah scatters the Mitzvites, the Egyptians, as he did Yisrael time and time again. Yep. And at the end of 40 years, it says he will gather them back to their land. Okay. It's kind of like a mini exodus and return, isn't it? Just like. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think that's so wonderful that uh, he loves all of us, even the Goyim if if yeah. if if they, yeah. you know, uh, take his uh, his hints, take his uh, his witnessing throughout time, and uh, apply it, you know, and and go for it, just do away with all those worthless gods, you know. <laughs> so, and th- so this this really shows that the Mitzrites were important to Yah. They, they really were. And, you know, too, to better understand the beginning of can, this Can I verse, jump in for just a second? Oh, yes, please, go right ahead. Yeah, because, um, you know, Yah created everything that there is, right? He created it out of the word of his mouth, and it was perfect, and he loved it, and he loves it, okay? And that includes those of us who are not after his heart. He loves even the heathen, the people that, that are not after his heart. The ones that turn their back on him purposely. The, the ones that, that swear at him. That call him all kinds of names. That hold him in contempt. Okay? He loves them anyway. Because they're his creation. And, and that just freaks me out. Because that is not a human way of thinking. I'll tell you what. It just isn't. That's right. So, yeah, he, he, he's absolutely amazing. He does. He would not that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I mean, that's it's crazy. It's crazy, but that's how he is. And not that he's nuts. It's that we don't just just don't get it. As well as we get it, we don't get it. Yeah, so true. And and two, I mean, he's of course we know he's all about love, and this absolutely. is. This is where the wicked fall short, you know. They simply do not know love like they should. And thus they go after everything else of the flesh. Absolutely. Uh, but but anyway, I, I did want to um, make a little note here because I heard MP say something that I, I don't agree with, and that's about uh-huh. 
bringing again captivity. Okay, I, I don't believe this says anything about uh, another instance of captivity. So let me let me clarify that because I really believe we we should always um, uh, read other verses that have uh, the same type of wordings. Here we have. Um, I'm sorry. To so to better understand the beginning of of this verse, consider the same exact Hebrew words in the same order. I'm going to read from Deborah or Deuteronomy 30 verse three. Okay, and and it says there that then Yahuwah thy Elohim will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will return and gather thee from all the nations, whether Yahuwah thy Elohim had scattered thee. Now here we're seeing actually the same exact return of people, you know, after their captivity. So he's returning them to their land. He's bringing them out of captivity. And that's the way he worded it. He says that Yahuwah will turn thy captivity. Same exact yeah. and the, three, and the word, the three Hebrew is words. Shub, isn't it? That's right. Shub. Um, that's right. That's right, and I believe this is exactly the meaning that we see here in Ezekiel twenty nine fourteen that the Mitzrites are being brought back to their land and thus removed from captivity. Now, I would not see this in any kind of uh, return to captivity. It's it's good, you know, to look at other instances, like I said in, in Scripture, to see how Yah speaks with His Hebrew language. Now, let me share just one more to give us a total of three witnesses here. Now, here's Job, or Job, 42, verse 10, where it's written, And Yahuwah turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also, Yahuwah gave Job twice as much as he had before. So, again, we had the exact Hebrew words, Shub, Eth, Shabuth. Okay, which is translated as in 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 these uh, words, turned the captivity. This captivity was actually the adversary, but Yah released him from this captivity and rewarded Job with twice what he had before. So, I just wanted to give a couple examples so we see that the this this idea of shub or turning from the captivity is really re- returning them, you know, back to their, let's say, previous, not state, because usually they're brought out because of their wickedness. The idea is that they are really put through trials and tribulations. Again, I believe that's why we see 40 years here, you know. So so they're brought out so that they can learn to be humbled. And, and that's why we see... For example, in verse 15, now I know in, in the King James you see uh, it shall be the basest of the kingdoms, but I think um, MC had a, a a better translation because that word basest often can mean to be humbled or lowered, uh, to be depressed f- figuratively. So really think about that. It shall, so if you're reading verse 15, it really could say and probably should say something like this so that we in our English understand it a little better. It, it could say, it shall be the, the lowest or most humble of the kingdoms. Neither shall it exalt itself any more above the nations. 
for I will diminish them. And that word diminish also is, has the same concept. It's decreasing, uh, you know, taking away pride and such and making one humble that they shall no more rule over the nations. And, and it's kind of interesting. That's exactly what the word um, that's translated uh, basest. Basest, it, yeah. That's actually exactly what it means. Right, that's the word shafal, uh, Strong's 8217. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah, that's right. This word definitely means just that, just brought down. And, um, and I believe the Mitzvahites learned a lesson in their scattering. And then thus, uh, even through history, since this time of Ezekiel, Mitzrayim, or Egypt, has not led other nations since. And thus, this is yet another prophecy that Yah takes to fruition all the way to the end of days, doesn't he? <laughs> he's, he's never wrong, you know? And he, you know, he, uh, he really wants us to know that, um, when he speaks something, which is prophecy, Okay, but when he speaks it into the world, oh boy, it comes true. No ifs, ands, or buts. And we saw that in creation. You know, he spoke these words, as, even as prophecy, and boom, it happened, didn't it? <laughs> it's like amazing. Uh, but yeah, he, uh, that's just the way he is. Uh, especially with his people, he lets us know, his people, he, he lets them know before he does something. Um, in verse 16, Yah will make sure that Israel never again looks to Mitzrayim for help. Okay, Mitzrayim uh, brought low would would ensure that, you know. Yisrael wouldn't go to them anymore being a, a stronghold as a neighbor. So it's Yah that Yisrael, um, uh, wait a minute, what did I write here? Um, I don't know, I can't see it. Yeah, we... Uh, <laughs> we need to trust Yah, I think, in, in just every, every situation. Um, not, not man and not even a, a, a neighbor, for example, who is, you know, a big, big bully, so to speak. I mean, look at today, you know. Yes. Don't, don't put your trust in man, but put it in Yah, because he saves. So do I put my trust in, in, in any particular man? I know nowadays some people put trust in someone like Trump. They think Trump's going to just come back and save them. But you know what? It's yeah. not Trump. It's not Trump that's going to do anything. It's exactly. going to be Yah. Yah will direct Trump if he so wills. And I have heard that prophesied that Trump is Yah's David of today. I've heard that prophesied we'll see if it's true well hey we'll see if it's true i mean if, and 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 it's been prophesied that this is the year that it takes place so it'll be very, very interesting um and, and it said that um that uh that because he will be brought back and put back into uh the president's seat this year that means it will not be done by man in terms of voting, but it will be done by Yah. So we'll see. That's, you say, that's all this, I can say. We has somebody see. prophesied that? Yes, that that's Trump been prophesied be by... This year? Yes, that's that's from Julie Green. 
Oh yeah, from okay. Julie Green Ministries. Well, and she's, uh, yeah. I don't know if and, it's her or not, but you know, others have prophesied it was going to be last year and the year before that. And, uh, you know, I mean, I've heard this prophecy so many times, and the dates have been wrong, though. So color me uh, more than a bit skeptical at this point. Exactly. I haven't heard any of that, but uh, this, this is the one time I have heard a year mentioned, so I'm kind of excited to see if that really takes place or not. <laughs> okay. Um but anyway, uh, that's through verse 16. Should I stop here and let you uh, carry on a little bit there, MP? or do you want me to Sure, let me have a little bit. I'm going to start at 17 okay. and probably hit 17 and 18. Sure, go ahead. 17 anyway. 17. No, I'll, I'll cover that. Okay. Um, let's see. And it came to pass in the 7th and 20th year, in the first month, in the first day of the month, the word of Yah came unto me, seeing saying okay verse 17 talks about the 27th year which i think means the 27th year of the siege of jerusalem by nebuchadnezzar's armies and it's the first day of the seventh month of the now 27 year siege against jerusalem now how could jerusalem withstand a siege of 27 years duration there must have been a really secret cave that the siege layers never found how that's Zeke's pop, you know, uh, is, is said to have carried all the furnishings of the Holy of Holies off to Mount Horeb, Sinai, for safekeeping. Now, my commentary in Yirmiyahu 52 has a very good possibility as to how the furnishings of the Holy of Holies got out of Dodge. Um, I'm sorry, out of Jerusalem, under the loving care of Yirmiyahu. Hezkel's Ever-loving Papa. Okay. Azamra has a salient comment on verse 17. They say it was in the 27th year, verse 17. This cannot mean the 27th year of the reign of Zedekiah, since he reigned for only 11 years. If our commentators explain on the, as our commentators explain rather, on the basis of the ancient historical Midrash Seder Olam, that the 27th year was the 27th year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, eight years after the destruction of the temple and the death of Zedekiah, which was when Egypt was delivered into the hands of Babylon, according to Rashi, Metzodas David, and Radak, all a bunch of uh, uh, orthodox, um, what do you call, sources. Anyway... Thus, the series of prophecies begin are beginning with that at the end of the next chapter. That's Ezekiel chapter 30, verses 20 to 26, which is dated to the 11th year, in other words, of the reign of Zedekiah, the year of the destruction of the temple. We've re, we received before this prophecy of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's 27th year. All of these things that we're talking about in this particular passage were already done by the time Nebuchadnezzar got here. Okay, now here's a Zamra on verse 17 through 21. Thus again, we see that these prophecies are not written in the book of the, in the strict chronological order in which they were received, but rather are arranged thematically. You like that, Ken? thematically, to bring out the prophet's message of maximum effect, or to maximum effect. Yes! Having prophesied... What's that? I just said, yes! 
Okay. <laughs> Having prophesied in general about the destruction of Egypt and its reason for the early sections of our present chapter, verses 1 to 16, Ezekiel now zooms in and tells how Nebuchadnezzar would do the work, receiving the, pill the pillage of Egypt as his reward for his great work of destroying Tsur, that is, Tyre. Okay? Tsur is what it's called most of the time. After which, in the prophecy of the first part of the next chapter, Ezekiel 30, verses 1 to 19, Ezekiel details the devastation of Egypt city by city. Then, in the prophecies that follow from Ezekiel 30 and verse 20, until the end of the series about Egypt at the end of chapter 32, he returns to give more of a wide-angle perspective on the significance of the downfall of Egypt in comparison with the downfall of other great nations. And that's going to be fascinating to look at, and we'll do that in the not-too-distant future. That's what I got through verse 17, and uh, you can have it back there, Ken, if you'd like. Um, yeah, let me say something there on that. Um, verse 17, I know it says uh, 27th year. Now, if you recall back in chapter 24, I had gone through some detail on um, on some dates and such. And it seems like back in the year 605 B.C., we had a couple of things take place which will start the first year of all of this. And that year was the year that Nebuchadnezzar became king and when Yah's people first began to uh, become in bond, or the, the beginning of his people's bondage. Yes. That was the first year in 605 B.C. So, yeah, I kind of uh, agree with that. And um, uh, let's see, what else did I have? Uh, Babylonians in, invade Judah. Uh, the first wave of deportation of Jews to Babylon is that year. I even had that the Babylonians battle Egypt. I think that's because the, um, remember, uh, Israel attempted to get Egypt in on this. But uh, right. I think the Babylonians put a quick end to that. <laughs> you know? So anyway, yeah, it, it is kind of interesting how um, we're being uh brought back in time a little bit here not, i mean not back uh, but uh forward in time i should say um and, and then we get to i'm not i'm gonna kind of yeah I, i'm gonna jump verse 18 here I, I had i had a hard time uh with 18 believe it or not uh, <laughs> uh where i actually reached out to a commentary that i I kind of liked it made sense, and I kind of like to to share it. it, it this comes from um, Enduring World, which apparently uses the studies of various Bible teachers and pastors, and you know, for each each uh, section, they actually give the name of the teacher or pastor who who wrote this segment. So, here's what they had to say. They said. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, caused his army to labor strenuously against Tyre. Now, Nebuchadnezzar conducted a long siege against Tyre, one that in the end was not worth all he had invested in the siege. 
it could be said that neither he nor his army received wages from Tyre. Now, here's some information on that. The first century A.D. Jewish historian and apologist Flavius Josephus, which I'm sure a lot of us have heard about Josephus' writings, his writings, uh, lasted for 13 years in the uh, Antiquities um, 11.1. Tyre consumed its treasures in its own defense or otherwise made them unavailable to the Babylonians. Now it's written by uh, fellas, Walker and Hoppy. Also, the the Tyrians, finding it at at least impossible to, to defend their city, put all their wealth aboard their vessels and sailed out of the port and escaped for Carthage. And thus Nebuchadnezzar lost all of the spoil of one of the richest cities in the world. That was written by That's Clark. That's a very good possibility. Um, yeah. Carthage, yeah, these, Carthage was founded by Israel and Lebanon. And uh, the, the, actually the Phoenicians were actually Lebanon and Israel. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, that, that's just that's just historical fact. I've so heard some uh, of that too, <laughs> and and they went all over the world. The Lebanese went out the Straits of Gibraltar, and the Isra- Israelites went out the Red Sea to the south and out to, off to the west. And those two navies conquered mm-hmm. the known world. Okay, mm-hmm. and that was Carthage. <laughs> it's absolutely it's absolutely amazing if you look into that that history. It's it's absolutely crazy that Solomon got as rich as he did, and he got as much knowledge of, of stuff all around the world as he did because the Phoenicians were the ones that were doing all of that, and that was Israel and Lebanon. Anyway, go on. Right. Go ahead, back. Okay, uh, point number three. According to secular histories, we do not know whether Tyre was captured by the Babylonian force or not. Though a few years later, Babylonian officials were in residence in the city and Babylonian uh, sovereignty was acknowledged. All that Ezekiel tells us is that the rewards of the siege were not commensurate with the effort involved. That was written by a fellow named Taylor. And the fourth and final point here, though some perceive that this passage demonstrates the incomplete fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecies against Tyre, such a position rests on silence. On the contrary, these verses demonstrate that God, as they write here, faithfully executed his word against Tyre through Babylonia as he promised. The scriptures do not demand that complete fulfillment lay in this one siege alone. That was written by Alexander. So, to me, these seem like pretty pretty good factual reasons as to why the Babylonians were unable to obtain spoils from this from the success of this war. Okay, absolutely. Now, and then we get into, um, oh, carry on after. We get into the break. God, I'm breathing, and I pray, don't take me soon, cause I am here for a reason. Sometimes in my tears I drown, but I never let it get me down. 
to the Torah Teachers Roundtable, Apostolic Edition, with your hosts Rob Miller, Mark Patron, and yours truly, Mark Call. We hope you'll find this discussion entertaining, thought-provoking, and that above all, you'll be like the Bereans and search out the scriptures for yourself to see if these things be true. All right, welcome back, folks. The Torah Teachers Roundtable Tanakh edition in the book of Ezekiel. Almost finished with chapter 29, and uh, there was agreement during the break. We're going to go back to Ken, let him finish up. All righty. Um, yeah, I had just finished, you know, talking about uh, some possibilities on why it says in verse 18 that Nebuchadnezzar nor his army received any wages for Tyrus. Okay. Now, and we notice verse 19. Okay. Right after he says no wages came to them from Tyrus or for Tyrus. It says in verse 19, it begins with the word key in Hebrew, which is uh, Strong's number H, 3651, which means therefore, thus, or hence. So this word, this verse, verse 19, would thus be a replacement for not receiving what was expected prior to, which was the war with Tyre. So I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar wasted no time in marching down to Mitzrayim following the long siege on Tyre in order to keep his army from being so dismayed to quit or disperse. I'm guessing that all of the abundances and spoils of Mitzrayim would be quite the carrot before their eyes to keep them on the team and ready to serve. You know what I mean? I mean, (laughs) come on. Everyone in the world at that time would have known how rich Mitzrayim was. You know, they had been this great kingdom for such a long time. So, and Yah would ensure that that this, as a reward for Nebuchadnezzar, doing his bidding against all of these wicked nations. You know what I mean? <laughs> he would make darn sure, and, and we see that. In verse 19, it says at the end of the verse, and it shall be the wages for his army. That's all that multitude, which I believe that has to do with uh, excess and things like, you know, food, uh, things that, you know, people buy and sell, etc. And take her spoil, take her prey, it says. I mean, you know, they're going to take anything that has any value and they're going to literally rape or strip this this nation of all that stuff and give it says even the land um his labor then he served it's funny how you know remember that's the, uh, that, that's a very important point because even remember before <clears throat> yah when when they were in the wilderness remember when uh Yah brought Israel through the wilderness before he went up against um, uh, very early on. 
against these uh, wicked people that were in the wilderness areas. He told his people, well, wait a minute, if you if you just got married, just don't go to war, stay for a year and, you know, get get to know your wife. Oh, and and if you if you planted a vineyard, stay home for a year and and, uh, you know, get some yield out of that thing. That's right. You know, or if you built a house, I believe was another one. Um, Stay for a year, get things settled. You know, so, you know, it was very important for um, for uh, his people to, you know, uh, finish things, you know, projects, finish uh, things that 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 they began. You know, y'all thought it was very important that they do this so that so that the foundation is built on a rock, you know, so to speak. It's not left in some uh, very early stage. Where it could easily be, you know, uh, persuaded for something else. Meaning, if he just got, let's say a person just got married, he might not know his wife very well yet. And then someone might come along later and influence that woman, you know? Things like that could happen. You know, you need to, you need to really establish things. And that's, that's what Yah wants. He wants men uh for for war at that time he needed them to feel established and and feel like you know they they done what they could at home now they're ready to you know go go pounce on the enemy and Ken, <laughs> so there's another there's another so, reason too and, yes go ahead and, and that is it's actually twofold and it speaks of it in that very same verse here where he says hey look if you're one of these weak need folks if you're going to be scared that's infectious so don't go to battle and I remember what Sam Adams said, kind of paraphrasing it. You know, we seek not your counsel nor your arms. In other words, there is a there's a psychological element of exactly what he is referring to through this entire idea. Uh, there are rewards, and there are things that people have have done, whether it's planting a vineyard or taking a new wife, that they need to be able to uh, to at least see some of the fruit of that. And he he's supportive of that. Furthermore, the uh, the opposite, the idea of fear, is contagious. And if people aren't committed, they're not willing to go out there and do in faith what needs to be done, you stay home. And furthermore, if you're going to infect the troops with fear, then we don't need you out there either, because this is going to be the kind of battle that is going to march in obedience to yod heh and him alone. And I can't help but think, wow, that you know resonates now through the centuries to us as well. Amen, brother. That's- Thank you for adding that. Yes, very good. And that's that's so true and well said. Uh, so you know, yeah, that's why. Um, uh, just like what we saw with uh, Yisrael uh, when they were in the wilderness, so we see, you know, this. I believe the same idea here as well. And um, that's up yeah, to yeah, usually verse twenty. Himself. Go ahead. Yeah, usually repeats himself. He did it with Israel. He did it with uh, with uh, Babylon here. Okay, these people were doing doing his bidding. Nebuchadnezzar was doing Yah's bidding in this thing. Okay, <laughs> he was doing Yah's bidding in in conquering Israel. He really and truly was. He was bringing he was bringing some sense to Israel. You know, <laughs> so it, 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 it's 
it's amazing to me that Yah just repeats himself and repeats himself and repeats himself over and over and over again, and we still don't get it. He does. You're right. <laughs> Absolutely. I know it. Um, uh, let me, uh, let me finish with this last verse. This, this okay. last verse, uh, I think is a little tricky, but to me, the, the reference to the horn as the word karen, which is strong number H7161 in the Hebrew is usually a reference to the light within oneself or the, the strength in one's spiritual self. Um, we, we might remember, for example, that whenever Moshe went up the mount and spent some time with Yah, he would come back down with this light <laughs> that was, uh, you know, people could see it, this light. Now, I believe that was a, a, a horn of light, okay? Literally, a horn, probably coming from his, from his head, you know? Um, so, and, and that, of course, was because he was with this, the, the great spiritual one of, of all the universe, you know? Um, so, of in the course. the presence of the source of all light. Amen. Light is the basis for everything. Okay? <laughs> and he was, in, he was in the very presence of the, of the source of all light. Of course, he absorbed quite a bit of it. <laughs> it took right. a while for, for it to uh, peter out. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. And, yeah. And yet here in verse 21, it says that he will cause that horn of the house of Israel to bud forth. So meaning it will begin to grow. And I, I believe this is, um, and, 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 and it goes on to say, and I will give thee the opening of the mouth in the midst of them. So to me, it's almost like saying they're going to start understanding what um, Ezekiel is saying, I believe Yah is spelling out that that uh, awakening to Ezekiel's words and belief as he speaks Yah's prophecy and words to them. I believe this is a, a growth in them that more and more they're going to start understanding and, and have, you know, Yah's prophecy in them. And, and then, of course, it finishes with, and they shall know that I am Yahuwah. And and I believe that again is is just more proof that that they are uh, learning more about him and how uh, he works and, and certainly how he's he's prophesying through Ezekiel and and believing. So you know again that would be the um, the horn budding forth, you know the growth in their spirit. So anyway, that, that that's what I have through the end of the chapter. Let me go ahead and. Pass it back over to MP. All right. I'll cover a bit of this. Verse 18 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar's army got no profit from their siege and destruction of Tzor, Tyre. They had performed brilliantly for Nev, and he needed for them to be able to show a profit for their service. Now, and I mean he needed it because he's one man and they're an army. Okay, so <laughs> I think that the king of Tyre, Tzor, had actually stripped any ves- uh, valuables from the island and had them safely deposited somewhere off-island, so to speak. Shades of stirring, of stripping the temple of its valuable furnishings by Yirmiyahu, right, uh, Ezekiel's father. Okay, he he took all of the furnishings of the Holy of Holies of the temple 
and he took them according to tradition to Mount Sinai. Okay, now whether or not that's true, I don't know for sure, but I like the sound of it, so I, I'm going to go with it. Anyway, <clears throat> TSK has a good comment here. They said, Jerome asserts on the authority of the Assyrian histories that when the Tyrians saw the city must fall, saw that their city must fall, they put their most valuable effects on board their ships and fled with them to the islands and their colonies so that the city being taken, Nebuchadnezzar found nothing worthy of his labor. Okay, now maybe that's where Nebuchadnezzar got the idea. Okay, his army was quite formidable and might turn on him, which would never do. So they took a short march to Egypt to garner some booty in verse 19 so that his troops could show a profit. Yah led him to Egypt, though I'm pretty sure Nebuchadnezzar thought of it, uh, you know, thought it, the idea was his own. Um, anyway, here's a Zamra on that. Son of man. That is, Nebuchadnezzar made his army labor hard against Tzor. Yet he had no wages nor for his army, or nor his army, in verse 18. He had no wages, and neither did his army. Now the idea, or the way of those who besiege a city for a long time, is that they exert themselves and exhaust themselves, carrying great loads of wood and stones. Nebuchadnezzar captured Tzor in the 23rd year of his reign as we find in the Seder Olam. But after he took all of its plunder, the sea rose and swept it away from them, because it had been decreed against Tzor and her booty that they should be lost at sea. That according to Rashi. And believe me, the Orthodox Jews love Rashi, so they're going to believe that. Anyway, another paragraph from the Zamra on this subject. They say this, Having read Ezekiel's prophecies about the downfall of Tzor in the previous chapters, in Ezekiel chapters 26 to 28, learning now how Nebuchadnezzar was sent to destroy it, but could only receive his reward by plundering Egypt, provides us with a fascinating insight into how the Almighty pays off, plays off one nation against another in order to bring about his inscrutable purpose in his providential government of human history. Nebuchadnezzar's destruction of Egypt would be her retribution for having been a broken reed for Israel, and the decree against Egypt would spell redemption for Israel. Okay, now, there's an interesting thing in the Hebrew of verse 19, where KJV says, take their spoil, take their prey. The words translated take, according to TSK, are actually repetitions of the noun that follows. Spoil their spoils, pray their prey. This was Yah telling Nev, in my, whole, my humble opinion, to go get some profit for his troops. The word translated wages is from the Hebrew 7980, uh, Shavar, I'm sorry, Shachar, uh, to compensate or to fill a void, or making good on wages, which is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. He may have been tough, but he knew how to quell a riot without getting wiped out himself. And Yah says, they wrought for me. Okay? Yah says, they wrought for 
me. Yah was watching out for those who were doing his physical labor through Nebuchadnezzar. Adonaiah goes farther, further in verse 20, actually saying that they wrought for me. Okay, that is, Adonaiah says they're doing this for me, not for themselves, not for Nebuchadnezzar, for me. Now, Azamra has this comment on verse 21. On that day, I shall cause the horn of the house of Israel to put out roots. Rashi comments on this verse that he was neither heard nor found any, he has neither heard nor found any satisfactory explanation of how the fall of Egypt would bring forth roots for Israel and refers the phrase on that day back to verse 13, which says that God would gather in the Egyptians from the exile at the end of 40 years. Now, Rashi explains that the end of 40 years coincided with the short-lived reign of Belshazzar, the last king of Babylon. This was when the star of Persia began to rise, and with Persia's destruction of Babylon, not only was Egypt freed from subjection to Babylon, but the roots were planted for the rebuilding of the temple. Because Cyrus of Persia authorized the first wave of Judean exiles to return to Jerusalem under Zerubbabel. That's interesting. Now, in that day, when used in a prophetic sense, is usually talking about the day of Yah, which everyone knows is yet future. I think it speaks of the new creation in which will dwell only righteousness. May it come quickly and in our day. What is the horn of the house of Israel? The word translated horn is karen, that is chaf, resh, nun, sofit, to project upward, like a horn of a male deer or sheep. Now, a horn represents strength and perhaps leadership. Vowel pointed as the word karan, it means to radiate or shine in glory, which the horns of adult males, males suggest gloriously shining. Yah says that he is going to give the house of Israel his glory, and all the nations shall know that Yah reigns in and through Israel. Let's go back and see the other uses of they shall know in chapter 29. In verse 6, and all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am Yah, because they have been a staff of reed to the house of Israel. Verse 9, And the land of Egypt shall be desolate and waste, and they shall know that I am Yah. Because Yah had said, The river is mine, and I have made it. Then in verse 21, In that day shall I cause the horn of the house of Israel to bud forth, and I will give thee the opening of the mouth in the midst of them, and they shall know that I am Yah. They shall know that I am Yah, repeated three different times in the same chapter. Do you think maybe that by this time they knew who Yah was? And I'm talking about Nebuchadnezzar's people knew who Yah was. I think they did. And that's what I got for this chapter. Let me let me add one more thing real quick. Um, Let's do. In that uh, the fact that uh, this, this army uh, did not get wages. Now, remember... Um, a number of times when um, Nebuchadnezzar and and his army was uh, 
to, you know, do Yah's will and to, um, defeat some, uh, neighboring nation that, that needed to be brought down, uh, according to Yah, of course, uh, that often it would be said by Ezekiel here that they would be brought down by many nations. And I believe that has to do with this army. You know, the more nations he was defeating, I believe he was he was growing that army, you know, little by little. Most likely the better, you know, warriors from all these other nations. Um, and and I, I would think the more that they, you know, that they grew like that, the more they would all feel like, hey, we're. We're we're really special because we're huge and we're we're mighty and, and and all this kind of thing, right? That that would make sense, but at the same time, it's not like they were patriotic, like like our nation might be, like our warriors might be for the United States. You know, they might fight because of patriotism and not so much about the spoils of war or you know monies, etc. Right. But whereas here. Yeah, these these guys could easily, because they're so big and mighty, at some point in time, because they're from all these other nations, they could stop and say, you know what, we're sick and tired of working for this guy here. Let's just kill him off, and we're we're free. Let's go back home, blah, 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 you know. And and they could do that, because they're from all these other nations, and and they're mighty. They're this big army. Uh, so it kind of makes sense that Nebuchadnezzar had to be a pretty smart guy to, you know, he had to make sure that this army got what they wanted. They, they had to be paid their wages. Absolutely. So, he, you know, he didn't mess around. He hurried up, I believe, and went right down to Misraim to, to, to try to get some spoils for all these, you know, hardworking men. <laughs> so to speak. Absolutely. So anyway, they were, yeah, for the O2. Right. So, I mean, I mean, the the rank and file soldiers were in it for what booty they could take. Absolutely, I, I seriously I doubt so. that they were being paid by their emperor. Okay, <laughs> their their, their right. families may have been taken care of while they were off fighting, but I seriously doubt that they were being paid for the right. for the job by their boss. They were getting they were taking spoils. That was the whole point of going right. out there and taking it. So true. I think that's all we got for the chapter, huh? Are we? I'm thinking. All right. Are we ready then? Let's continue into chapter uh, um, 30. And all we're going to do at this point is just read a little bit of it, and then we'll have the bottom of the hour break here. But uh, it says, The word of Yahuwah came to me again, saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says Yahuwah Eloheka, Wail, woe to the day. For the day is near, even, and, and uh, MP just mentioned this, even the day of Yahuwah. It says the day of the Lord in some English renderings, but it's the day of Yahuwah. And, uh, of course, there's lots of discussion on that. I'm sure we'll have some when we get back. But it's near. It will be a day of clouds. Yeah, I time. think that that's saying Adonai Yah underneath the Lord God. I'm sorry? Okay. I think that's saying Adonai Yah. Sometimes oh, yeah. I lay okay. under sure. the Always moon okay. And let's, let's go. I'm breathing And I pray Don't take me soon Cause I am here for a reason Sometimes in my tears I drown But I never let it get me down So when I get in the tears around I know something I've been praying for, for the people. 
This is the Torah Teachers Roundtable Tanakh Edition, last segment for today. And as we went to the break, Ken and uh, well, Mark both pointed out something that's interesting. You you see it whenever the uh, the English translators get all bent around the axle, try to avoid the thing that this chapter is talking about, which is his real name, and they shall know what his real name is. And in this case, it's kind of funny. If you look at this carefully, and, and uh, during the break I compared a couple of different renderings just to make sure, but um, what it actually says in the Hebrew is, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says Adonai Yahuwah, yod heh vav heh. Now, in the right. English, as you know, they try to avoid using anything associated with his real name. So normally you see capital L-O-R-D, and that is a replacement for the Tetragrammaton. Sometimes, though, it's it's um, uh, Adonai um Eloheka, or, or I'm sorry, Yahuwah Eloheka, which is the Lord God, all capitalized. But in this case, it's small, uh, capital L, small L-O-R-D, God, capital G-O-D. Okay, so what the heck does that mean? Well, let's, you go to the concordance, or you go to the Hebrew uh, interlinear in this case, and it is Adonai yod vav So um, it's always kind of fascinating, because, again, the whole point here is, they shall know. And... Um, they're going to make sure that, to the best of their ability, you don't know if they can help it. Anyway, uh, did you have an, uh, something to add there, Ken? Uh, no, no. I, I was just hoping we could uh, at least read through verse 4. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to comment just a little bit on what you just said, Mark. You're absolutely right. Uh, in the KJV and almost every English translation, I have never seen an English translation that didn't, um, but I'm I'm fudging because I haven't seen everyone. Anyway, when it says the Lord, L capital L, small O, small R, small D, that's talk that says uh Adonai or something like that. Or some version and of when it Jones, says that means that or some rendering of Baal in other words too. Yep. One of one of his other uh names, but when it's all caps, that's replacing Yudhebabhe. Okay, and and that's just how it is. It can be either the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, or it can be the Lord God, capital G, capital O, capital capital D. Okay, and that's how they do that. It's to let you know that is we're actually talking about the covenant name, but it's not <laughs> except they don't really want you to know. They, like the Jews, think that you can't say the name. You can't refer to him by his real name. It doesn't make sense to me. He he knows me by my name. I know him by his. Why can't we talk together? 
Well, you're supposed to know his real name, and it keeps telling us in all these prophecies. They will know, Kiyani Yahuwah. So Absolutely. it always seems to me not just bizarre, but downright um, disreputable for them to hide his name when the point of the whole verse and the whole chapter even is they will know my real name. Exactly. <laughs> so anyway, exactly. And by, by the way, uh, we see that uh, we see his name in both verses 1, 2, and 3. Um, it's, it's Strong's number 3068 in verses 1 and 3, and it's Strong's number, um, one, one number higher, H3069, as God, all capitals. But I'm right. guessing that in the Hebrew, you probably have the exact same letters, yod heh Yeah. Yeah. Tell you what, I'll look that up right now. Okay, well, let's continue on and I'll go ahead and read a bit more because there is one other thing that's worth pointing out since this is, in fact, the, the, the topic anyway. This is the day of the Lord. Now, of course, it's not really. It's the day of yod heh vav that we're talking about here. And uh, there are several places where this is used in general. And here's another one that, that kind of sticks to the, to the theme. It's a day of clouds. Uh, it's a day of darkness. In other words, this is a day that um, arguably other places suggest no flesh will survive. This is the time of judgment and the day of yod heh vav not to be confused with Sun God Day, which was never, uh, it's always his day, but it wasn't his uh, Sabbath day anyway. So in, throughout this thing here, it's important, I think, when people see these capital words, go understand, see how your Bible renders it. Better still, there are some uh, newer versions, and um, I don't know if MP's seen these or not, where they will preserve the name. Uh, they'll preserve the name of uh, Yahushua or Yeshua. They'll preserve the name of yod heh vav and they'll get some of these other words right uh, as well. So there are quite a few of those uh, nowadays that are available. Uh, Ken, did you have anything else to add, or, and then we'll continue? Uh, I was just going to comment through verse 4, so if, if you could just make sure we, we can read through there. Okay. Be good. Well, if we're set, well, I mean, go ahead. It's a day of clouds, a time of the goyim. Now, here's another one of those words that we point out. Uh, I notice uh, some renderings say that the time of the heathen, others. So when I'm looking at the New King James says the time of the Gentiles. We know the Hebrew word there is goyim, and it's the nations or these other people, these outsiders. The time of those, whoever they are, and uh, yeah, oftentimes they are heathens or pagans as well, and that's what Gentiles really imply. So I'm careful. The word Gentiles fits sometimes it does in others. Maybe it is the time of the pagans he's talking about. The sword shall come upon Egypt, or Mitzrayim. Great anguish shall be in Ethiopia when the slain fall in Mitzrayim, or Egypt, and they take away her wealth, and her foundations are broken down. Now, we're going to get a list of places next. Ethiopia, Libya, Lydia, all the mingled people. Um, Shub, and the men of the lands who are allied shall fall with them by the sword. Let's pause there, and we'll, we'll go to Ken, since he seemed to want to do that next. Well, first, let me just say that, yeah, that word uh, heathen, which is Strong's number H1471, um, would, would would be plural, which is goyim. You know, ending in im would be plural pluralized. Uh, goy is uh, rendered... Uh, more often than not, as the word nations throughout uh, the Tanakh. Uh, and that's, what is it, uh, 266 times, according to my Strong's uh, utility here. 143 times as the word heathen. Um, 
and then 30 times as the word Gentiles. So, yeah, you can see the same word. This this is the word Yah uses for not his people, but everybody else. You know, everybody else. That would be whether they're pagan. You, you can call them pagan. You can call them heathen. You can call them uh, the nations. You can even call them Gentiles. That's all the same word, believe it or not, according to Yah. Now, I know we, because we're kind of raised in this New Testament mentality, often we'll call ourselves Gentiles. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> but, always struck me as funny because it's like saying I'm a pagan and proud of it. And I right. guess during the time of Lent, it makes sense to <laughs> <Yeah>. say that. <laughs> exactly. I, I, I think that, you know, Christianity has kind of a wrong flavoring on, on that um that, that, that word Gentiles. It really shouldn't be a positive thing. It should not be of, of Yah. It should be, you know, like, likened to a heathen or pagan. Because they're, they're all the same word in the, in the Hebrew, which is Yah's language. You know? That's right. So, but anyway, verses one through four, Ezekiel is told to prophesy the ruin of the Mitzvites. And this is a day that Yah has set aside specifically for the defeat of the Mitzvites. The picture of dark thunder clouds and lightning. You know, imagine all that. This, 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 this great darkness filling the sky would bring on the dread and fear of what is known to come, which is the death by the sword. Ooh. You know, it did. It, it, it probably it's it's all there to give them a little bit of, you know, fear and fright. Um, and and when there is such words as their riches being taken away and their foundations being torn down, then the fear and the dread really becomes great. And I suppose Yah calls this a time of the heathen, since or nations since. You've probably the two greatest powers on the earth, you know, up until this day, when looking through time, up until this day. Now, of course, that's not including the <laughs> the good ones, which is Yisrael, but, but I'm talking about the great uh, nation powers or heathen powers on the earth, were, were really these two powers when looking through time, and they're coming together. To bring one down to complete desolation. So it, it really makes sense. And, and it's probably kind of written this way. That that this is a time of the heathen, as Yah puts it. <laughs> you know? It's it's really these 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 two great powers. And um, um, I guess Mitzrayim probably didn't have a chance because... Nebuchadnezzar's army has probably been growing and growing for years, oh, getting, I would think, bigger and bigger, yeah, with all their conquering that they've been doing. Well, uh, yeah, it's not as if they, they went in and they conquered a nation and then they, they subjugated everybody. I mean, they took they took the, uh, the, uh, the cavalry that was defending their nation, and if they fought well, <laughs> hey, I, I'll let you live if you come and fight for us, and right. I'll and if you don't come and fight for us, we'll kill you. So <laughs> they had that choice, you know. Yeah, and I'm sure most of them said, "Okay, I'll fight for you." 
And that's why, of course, it was said to so many of these nations that you will be brought down by many nations. Well, those many nations were of Nebuchadnezzar. So, yeah, they were, they had to be fighting men from all these different nations, you know? They had to be. Absolutely. And they all got the same pay. Okay? You go into this place and you take, and you take that town. That place is going to be torn up. Uh, 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 we're going to take everything that they've got, and we're going to divide it evenly among the whole the whole crowd. And you, you know, I'm going to get my cut, and then y'all are going to get your cuts. Yep. It's, it's it, it really was a good way to go, and uh, and it made you want to fight. Let's go do it. That's right. Anyway, that's that's what I had up to verse four. Did, did you want to catch up there, uh, MP? Uh, I think I can. Let's see. Am I going through verse 4? I'm going to go at least through verse 3. Anyway, here we go. Zamra's opening comment gives us the gist. It briefly gives us the overview of the, of the chapter. It says, verses, it says, verses 1 through 9 on this chapter, wail over the coming destruction of Egypt and her various neighbors and allies at the hands of God's Malachim his agents and messengers, in verse 9, the executors of his inscrutable plans. Verses 10 through 19 detail Nebuchadnezzar's systemic, or systematic, rather, destruction of Egypt, its population, and their idols, city by city. Now, Yah addresses Yehezkel, beginning in verse 2. He says, Ben-Adam, prophesy and say, Ki ani Adonai, Yah, howl, okay? <laughs> the word that's translated howl is the Hebrew 3213, yalal, yud, lamed, lamed. Um, EDBH, Etymological Dictionary of Biblical Hebrew, has three definitions. Howling, wailing, or to cry in childbirth. Now, I don't think any of these guys were crying in childbirth, okay? <laughs> if those are given in a descending order of urgency... Ain't none of them good. Yah is ordering the people to scream bloody murder. And he'll give us the reason beginning in verse 3. But red le- or Blue Letter Bible has a number of other references all over scripture that speak of howling. Mostly in the prophets. I want to look at a few of them to see what Yah generally means uh, prophetically when he uses the term, the word woe. Translated from ha, that is hey hey, um, and, the, and the first given uh, given an a vowel uh, from Hebrew 1929, which is a shortened form of the Hebrew 162, which is aha. Okay, it actually starts with a with an uh, an aleph, and then you get hey hey. Okay, so anyway, it, uh, it's. It's as if one noticed something of importance, you know. Ah, aha, you know. <laughs> anyway, in uh, Ezekiel chapter 21 and verses 9 through 12, says this, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus saith Yah, say, A sword, a sword is sharpened and also furbished. It is sharpened to make a sore slaughter. It is furbished that it may glitter. Should we then make mirth? It contemns the rod of my son, every tree. And he hath given it to be furbished, that it may be handled, 
his sword is sharpened, it is furbished to give it into the hand of the slayer. Cry and howl, son of man, for it shall be upon my people, upon all the princes of Israel. Terrors by reason of the sword shall be upon my people. Smite, therefore, upon your thigh. Also, in verse 2, we see the word woe, which is translated from the Hebrew 1929, ha, an expression of grief. Okay, so we get, we get, aha, okay, this is, this is great, and we got, aha, this is not so great. Okay, so it can go both ways. Now in verse 3, we see the day of Yah is near. And as I said before, it truly is right this minute as we speak. Okay, it truly is. The day of Yah is near right now. And another thing comes to mind. There is probably nothing closer to the day of Yah is near than we are as we speak. Okay? It is truly shall be the time of the heathen. We are this that is holding my thumb and forefinger about an eighth of an inch apart. This close to the end of days. Revelation 3, 4 coming up any time now. As I've said before numerous times, there is nothing on earth closer to Egypt today than the United States of America. The word translated as contem, which is suspiciously close to the word contempt, and it's because they're the same root. In verse 10 is the Hebrew 3988 ma'as, okay, mem, aleph, samek. To despise, to objectively find defect. It's really easy to subjectively find defect. It's different when you objectively find defect. For instance, it's really easy to subjectively find defect in the Biden Harass um, administration in Washington, D.C. And I, by the way, I'm spelling that B I D A N, Bidan, Harass, uh, if you're a Republican. However, there are quite a few Democrats who are also finding defect in sleepy Joe Biden. Okay? Bedan. That's the Hebrew word that we get from, if you, if you look at it, that's what Biden is. It's a Hebrew word, Bedan. In judgment is what it means. Okay? And Kamala Haras. Haras is He Resh Samek. Uh, are, are truly being subjective because they have something to gain, either financially or politically, from his presidency, like World War III over the Ukraine, which is where we're headed right now. And that's what I got for now. Let me uh, let me say something, too, about... Please do. Uh, verse 3, when it says, for the day is near, you know, you, you have this these uh, Hebrew words... Um, you know, key is for, but uh, the day is yom and near is uh, karob. Okay, yeah. so the day is near, and then it says the day Yahuwah near. Okay. Yes. I, I I really believe this could also be the day in which Yahuwah is near. Yes. In you know in, what I mean? I, absolutely. Because the, the sooner we enter into the Great Tribulation, the sooner we're going to have Yah on earth ruling over us. Okay? Right. <laughs> so I, I agree with you, and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, and it's pointed out that, that it's a cloudy day. 
I mean, remember when when Yahuwah was near with his people and 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 the Mitzvites or Egyptians. Remember when he separated them when they were about to cross the Red Sea. He was a great huge uh, pillar of fire, and he was a cloud, right? Cloud and fire, etc. So it makes sense that if it's a cloudy day, he may be near. You know. <laughs> Maybe that's that's one of the um, characteristics, anyway, of him being near would be great clouds. So, and not not that they were reading it that the day, uh, the day of Yah being like a subject, the day of Yah is near. Instead, it would be it could be rendered the day in which Yahuwah is near. You know where where he is near. So you know, there's there's kind of two ways you could look at it. You could look Absolutely. at it in two two different ways. Yeah. But you you know what? In in this particular case, when you're talking about the day of Yah being being close at hand, I mean, you just look at what's going on in the world right now. I mean, you can't miss the fact that he can't wait to get back here. Okay. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, get physically back here. Yeshua on Earth. I'm, I'm just, I'm looking forward to it. He's going to be the, he's going to be the king for a thousand years. I cannot wait to see that. <laughs> I'm into that. I'm with you there. I look forward to it too. Plus, right. we, we need a good cleansing. Okay, <laughs> you know. Oh, absolutely. So, well, yeah, this this whole world needs a good cleansing. That that will be happening very shortly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we've got about three minutes left. Uh, do we want to continue on? Pause. Anything you guys want to add on anything we've talked about so far before we get to the uh, to the top of the hour here? Because um, we're about out of time, basically. Uh, I don't think so. The, the the I commented through verse three, didn't I? Yeah, yeah. Um, and the, I'm what? just hoping. I, I'm just hoping that people. Uh, hear us when we, when we say that, that these are cycles that we can see today as well. Absolutely. You know, uh, everything that we're looking at here, it, it, it is funny how you can, you can really apply it to today. And you can see that Yah is working even through the wicked. Because, you know, one thing I noticed that, uh, Julie Green was prophesying here recently. Was that Yah was going to cause a lot of uh, great changes in the weather? Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I believe that is probably through man, because man yes. is literally playing with weather. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. So Absolutely. I mean, yeah. So often, you know, Yah will literally do things through man, uh, and that's that's just the way He works. We can see it here. You know, He worked through Nebuchadnezzar and his army to get what he uh, wanted upon each and every nation, including his own people, you know? So, yeah, he used Nebuchadnezzar, a wicked man, and his army to do his bidding. And I believe he's doing that today as well. Yeah. I don't know that I would go so far as to say Nebuchadnezzar was a wicked man. Um, he was he was obviously a heathen. He wasn't a believer, but uh, he was doing what kings did back then, 
which was, you know, go out and conquer. And, uh, he, and he was a benevolent dictator when he took over. You know, unless you're the government and the new place screwed with him. In which case, he came down hard. Which is what you would expect. You know? Again. Yeah. All right. But, well, we are out of time. But that guys. would be a king who's a man. Anyway, so we'll pick it up in chapter 30 next time. Thanks, folks. Thanks, guys. So long.